And tonight, the Wonder Woman reminds me a ton, or I kept thinking about Wonder Woman um, when I was thinking about this passage, um, because there's some stuff in this, in this film that reminds me a lot of Jesus. It's crazy. I watched the movie and I went, wow, this reminds me so much of Jesus. And here's the moment. This might surprise you. This happened a ton throughout the movie, though. First time I noticed it, she and the guy in the movie, I don't remember his name, like in the actual movie. I know his name is Chris Pine, uh, but uh, one of the Chris's. Um, But Diana, Princess Diana, Wonder Woman, who apparently she's never called that in the film, um, and Chris Pine, sure. Um, They're walking down the streets of London, this like dreary, dark city at this time. It's all muddy. Um, And they're bickering because she's trying, or he's trying to bring like some, I don't want to give away too much of stuff, but he's trying to bring something to someone. Um, And she um, just wants to head out to the battlefield to fight. She grew up on this island where everybody was just fighting like all the time. That's what they did. They trained to fight and then they all died. Um, and so, and she can't understand that everyone's just going about their lives while war is going on. This is the conversation they're having as they're walking through the streets of London. She can't understand why they wear what they wear. Like they're not even ready to fight. And she's wearing this like long brown coat to cover up her armor that he wanted her to wear because he was embarrassed by her armor and stuff. And she doesn't understand why she needs to cover up. And as she's walking, you can see through the seam in her coat, like the armor glinting. And you can see the shield sticking out a little bit and the sword every now and again making an appearance. And her shoulders are back. And she's, she's arguing with him. And as I'm watching this scene, my understanding of her as a warrior is being more and more entrenched. This woman is a fighter. He has, he has like business to do, but she is focused on the real problem that's going on in the world. She's a champion. She's a fighter. She's ready to go. And as the tension keeps mounting between them, and you're wondering, because it seems like as they're talking, she's just about to like ditch him, say forget this, and take off and find some way to get to the battlefield where she can fight. In the midst of this tension building, a baby starts crying. And in less than the blink of an eye, I mean, it is so fast, this shift. She goes, oh, baby! And then she, like, runs over to this mom who's holding this crying little baby. And it's amazing because in that moment, you realize that your categories don't work. At least mine didn't. She's a fighter, right? What kind of warrior wearing, like, arm? When have you ever seen a movie like that? Ever. When have you ever seen a character on film who has a sword and a shield and armor and goes, oh, a baby, and like wants to go hold it and kiss it? Do you know what I mean? Like, I, and, I, and I had this moment where I went, whoa, how, who is this character? Like, how do I put this? I, I didn't realize this was an attempt I was trying to make. How do I put this character into a box? And I couldn't do that. She defies categories. And the other thing is, throughout the whole movie, she doesn't seem to miss anything. She sees all this stuff that everybody else who, in the world that they, in, that they inhabit in the film um, just takes for granted and walks around ignoring and passing over. She's angry in this moment when she notices a baby in a woman's arms on the side of a muddy, busy, dirty street. She sees it and she knows it and she runs toward it. And another moment, she's getting ready to fight. Like, they're actually on the battlefield. She's getting ready to fight. And everyone else on the screen is, like, walking through this horrific scene um, to get to, like, this particular point And everybody's just going. They've all become numbed to the experience around them. And she, you're seeing on her face horror. She's taking it in. And if you're an observant movie watcher, you notice that you didn't even notice those things. That that Patty Jenkins, the director, let it linger for just a little bit. That as they're walking through this battlefield and there's people with limbs cut off and animals dying and people stuck in mud getting pulled out by friends and bleeding, like that you're just like, yeah, battlefield, move on. And then, then it pans to her face and she's horrified. And she wants to stop and help every single person on the way. And they're like, we don't have time for this. 
She keeps noticing everything, and this reminds me so much of Jesus. Like, he too defies categories. Jesus is extraordinarily hard to categorize. But tonight what I'm thinking about is how often Jesus is on his way to do a thing, and he detours. He changes direction. He goes back. He moves on. All based on the requests of people around him. He doesn't seem to miss anything that's going on around him, even when he's on mission. And, and it's surprising to me because this is, the, this is the Son of God on mission. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one by, for, through, um, all, all things were made. All things were made. He's on mission. Shouldn't he be focused on what he's doing? Why do you have time to come over for dinner if you're on such an important mission? That's what's surprising for me about Jesus, how much he detours and changes directions given the mission that he has been given. And tonight we're going to look at that dynamic in this passage of Scripture and watch what Jesus is doing as he makes these detours and these, um, as he, in, in, as he uh, engages these moments that seem like interruptions. And my, my suspicion is, my argument tonight is that, um, that every time he does these things, he's making space for people to be seen. He's making space for people to be seen. So, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, if you were here last week, uh, Jesus, uh, we read this story where Jesus tells the wind and the waves to be quiet, and they obey. And we talked about the importance of having courage in our world and trusting God even when it seems like he's asleep in the bottom of the boat. And that night when that was going on, they were sailing to this one part, um, one, one side of the Sea of Galilee. And when they got off the boat, Jesus cast this demon out of a man. And because of what happened with this situation, a bunch of the locals in that town were terrified. And they said, Jesus, please leave. And you know what he does when they ask him to leave? He leaves. He gets back in the boat with his friends. And they sail back to the place that he came from initially. On the northwest shore, probably, of the Sea of Galilee and near Capernaum. Jesus and his disciples, they leave and they sail back. Um, and then when they get off the boat, there's actually a crowd. And this is where our, our text tonight picked up. If you were following along in Luke chapter 8, which I encourage you to have your Bibles, check them out. Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 48. Um, we read that earlier. Um, it, it, in verse 40, it starts off with Jesus getting out of this boat. And there's a crowd right here gathered around the shore outside of the, this town, Capernaum, um, waiting for him, excited for him to be back. And standing there ankle deep in water probably on the shore of that sea, with the crowd like pressing, him around, pressing in around him really tight, this man named Jarius comes shouldering sort of through the crowd to make his way through that throng of people, and he throws himself at the feet of Jesus. My daughter's about to die, Jesus. Come and lay your hands on her that she would be well and live. I don't know how many of you have ever seen somebody actually throw themselves at the feet of another person. It's a pretty stark image. I haven't seen it. The closest I've seen is as, a, as a, um, a friend of mine at my church that often when we pray for people, he'll go, um, he'll go up front and he'll get down on his knees and he'll grab both of their feet and he'll put his head on them with his hands on them while he prays for them. And it's, it's like so intense to sit there in that moment. And that's not, that's not somebody in desperation asking for a thing, right? He's trying to honor this people, whatever. I don't know if you guys have ever seen somebody throw themselves at the feet of somebody else. It's a pretty intense image. Can you imagine how desperate that must be? And this wasn't just a random person either. This was a very important person from the crowd. Like Jarius was one of the leaders of the local synagogue. 
He would have been known as an upstanding, probably pretty put-together guy in the community, probably somebody who followed the rules. He throws himself at Jesus' feet in front of all of these people. If Jesus is literally on the shore because he's being pressed back, he might have even thrown himself in like wet, rocky, watery land, gotten muddy and wet as he did it. And he implores Jesus to come with him. And he says, Jesus, come. And you know what Jesus does? He comes. In a fascinating twist, the language, it's exactly the same language as when Jesus said, follow me, and the disciples follow Jesus. Now Jesus is following someone who professed a desperate faith to him. And they begin to make their way through the crowd, Jesus and his disciples following Jairus. And as they do, the crowd presses in even tighter. And it might be helpful for you to think of some combination between like a press conference, because Jesus is the focus of the attention here, and leaving an SEC football game. So if you can try to smash those two things together, like in the hallways, that you can maybe get a vibe for what this might have felt like outside as this is happening. And as they push forward, bumping and brushing up against hundreds or maybe thousands of people, Jesus feels something specific. He feels power go out of him. Isn't that a wild way to word that? Like it makes me think he's like a battery or something, I don't know. But is it possible at times, just speculating, that a simply like hugging Jesus would make you feel more human? You know, like, I don't, I don't know. Uh, like, what does that mean? That power like leaves him from touch. I don't know. But immediately he stops. Like immediately he felt the power go out of him and he stops. In the midst of that throng, that crowd of people pressing in and, 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 and pre- uh, closing in around him as they make their way down the street, he stops. Right there in the middle of the mob. Who did that? Someone just touched me, he said. And you can maybe imagine the reaction of the disciples and Jairus in that moment. Because what's at stake right now? A little girl's life. Jesus, my daughter's about to die. And they haven't even gotten out of traffic yet. What is he doing? And what does he mean that somebody just touched me? One by one, the noise falls off as people deny that they did it. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. it. wasn't me. Nope. And after a moment, Peter reminds Jesus that the crowds are all around him and pressing in on him, and he's laying on the sarcasm probably pretty thick. And maybe you can understand why. What do, you, what do you mean, did somebody touch me? There's a crowd all around us, and there's this little girl waiting for you, Jesus. We don't have time to stop. What do you mean, did somebody touch me? Someone has touched me. Power has gone out from me, he said. Moments before this, a woman in the crowd had heard Jesus commit to healing another young woman. She was in the crowd, and she heard Jesus' response to Jairus and saw Jesus take off after Jairus to heal a 12-year-old little girl. And perhaps that emboldened her. Because his ministry is not just for men, it's for women, it's for children, it's for slaves, it's for outsiders. One theologian would argue that today we're still trying to catch up to Jesus' advanced positions on human dignity and ethics. Come, Lord Jesus, and be swift in that work, right? Perhaps, though, perhaps she's just emboldened by her circumstance. You see, this woman... Some of our ancestors have actually given her the name Bernice. She had a vaginal discharge of blood continuously for 12 years. Can you imagine how uncomfortable that might be? And on top of the discomfort, 
and the feeling of not being clean, every single person in that town knew. Everyone knew. She'd be considered unclean in that culture. She wouldn't even be allowed to worship with everyone else. Hey, where's Bernice? Why is Bernice not with us today? Well, you know. You know. She'd seen tons of doctors all over the region. I'm not making this stuff up. We have three different gospel accounts that attest to the story, and each one of them lends particular details to the story. She'd seen tons of doctors all over the region and were told that they only made it worse. She spent all of her savings. She was broke, hopeless, worse off than before she sought help, and can you imagine the shame? Take a minute. Don't dodge this stuff. I want you to imagine that you're this woman. That you were uncomfortable and unclean every single day for more than a decade, and everybody around you knew it. And because of that, you couldn't join us. And you've sought help, but nothing works. And you were broke, seeing every expert, and there is no more help to be had. And there he is. The one who everyone says works miracles, he's walking and you only have a second to make a decision. If you could just touch his clothes, maybe that would be enough. He's done crazier things than this. Here's how one of our ancestors in the 400s, okay, this is a while ago, it's a little while ago, 400s, named Peter, but doesn't matter what his last name was, he won't care. Um, in the 400s, this is how he relays her story. Listen to how people have been talking about this woman, that we, we, we name her Bernice. I wonder if she would even like that name. I don't know. But um, tru- truly, um, I-, I wonder if she would rather be unnamed in the story. But um, listen, to how the- listen to how her story was worded in the 400s. No seas were ever so troubled by the ebb and flow of the tide as the mind of this woman pulled to and fro by the sway of her thoughts. After all the hopeless strivings of physicians, after all her outlay on useless remedies, after all the usual but useless treatment, when skill and experiences had so long failed, all her substance was gone. This was not by chance, but divinely ordered that she might be healed solely through faith and humility, whom human knowledge had failed through so many years. At a little distance apart from him stood this woman who nature had filled with modesty, whom the law had declared unclean, saying of her, she shall be unclean and shall touch no holy thing. She fears to touch, lest she incurs the anger of the religious leaders or the condemnation of the law. For fear of being talked about, she dares not speak, lest she embarrass those about her, lest she offend their ears. Through many years, her body had been an arena of suffering. Every day, unceasing pain, she can endure no more, The Lord is passing by so quickly. The time is short to think what she must do, aware that healing is not given to the silent, nor the one who hides her pain. In the midst of her conflicting thoughts, she sees a way, her sole way of salvation. She would secure her healing by stealth, take in silence what she dares not ask for, guarding her respect and modesty. She who feels unworthy in body draws near in heart to the physician. In faith, she touches God. With her hand, she touches his garment, knowing that both healing and forgiveness may be bestowed. This is the way our ancestors sometimes speak. Do you understand why a woman in this position, beaten down by her body, in the sin of society, 
would risk bumping through a crowd with blood running down her legs to grab just the fringe of Jesus' robe. Do you know this is the first time a woman actually approaches Jesus in public? And she manages to get behind him, probably on purpose, and she, rather than in front of him, and she reaches out and just for a moment she grabs the end of one of the tassels on his robe. The tassel which was hanging there as a reminder of the law which would proclaim her unclean. The law which tells her that in touching someone else she would make it unclean or him unclean. That tassel, she touches that and immediately she can feel a change in her body. A drying up, a healing. We're told that, like we're actually told that she felt a drying up, a healing. She feels it and Jesus in that moment feels something too and maybe... I wonder by his design, maybe it actually costs Jesus something personally every single time he heals. Regardless, it happened immediately. And I suppose the shock of it, maybe, like touching something with an electric current made her recoil because she trembles the moment she's healed and she shrinks back into the the crowd. As the creator, her master, lifted his head and began to look around, asking who did that. And one by one, the crowd denied it. And somehow, in that moment, she knew that she wasn't hidden from him. It's unclear. It's really unclear in the text, no matter which uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke account you read. But it seems very likely that Jesus knew the whole time who it was. That his questions and waiting drew the mob, the loud mob, to silence, wondering what was happening. And in that silence, she knows. She knows that he knows. And so she comes out into the light. She crawls out from between people that she'd been hiding behind, and she lays down before him. Not behind him, just touching the fringe of his garments, but before him. And for the second time in our story, someone falls down at the feet of Jesus. And just as her body had dried up, her words began to pour forth, and in the presence of everyone, this woman who did not want attention, she told everything. Why she came, what had happened with her body, what had happened when she touched his garments. And when she had finished, he says to her what I think is unimaginable. I think it's unimaginable. Like if I said, you have a thousand guesses as to what Jesus might have said, I don't think you would say this word. He calls her daughter. It's actually the only time that he says this to someone in the gospel accounts. And in that one word, In that one word, notice he doesn't call her by name. We don't don't know her name. He doesn't say woman. By calling her daughter, he actually, this woman who was ostracized and outcast and wasn't invited in, he binds himself to her. Whatever anyone out there thinks, you and I are connected intimately. I'm with you. You're with me. Daughter, he says. Daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Her faith has made her well. It wasn't the superstitious act of just touching clothes. Dozens of people bumping into him in the crowd were touching him too, and not all of their sicknesses were healed. It was her faith which mattered. Faith that propelled her through a crowd to take a massive risk. You might think, some of you, I don't know what traditions some of you come from, you might think it's really silly, I'm prone to think this, it's really silly that in a superstitious moment she just wanted to like touch his clothes, maybe. And all I can say to you is that she was desperate and she was healed. And though it was indeed her faith which made her well, 
her faith was manifested through very peculiar actions. And listen to this, faith which does not manifest itself in action, it's not faith. Faith which does not manifest itself in action is not faith at all. Do you know that? Do you know that faith is not some inner positive thought? That it's trust expressed in action. This is what biblical faith looks like. This is what Jesus would, would like for us to have faith in him. What I would encourage you to have faith in him rather than faith in all the other things that we are prone to trust, which lie, steal, and kill, and betray, and rusts, and die. That faith is not just inner positive thoughts. It's trust expressed in action. And something which comes to light over and over again in the stories of Jesus is that faith at all is, is enough for him. It's faith enough for him. At the risk of this being incredibly cliche, trusting a parachute means you're willing to jump out of a plane. Right? I mean, if you jumped out of a plane, I, I, I think we could say you trusted, you, you tr entrusted your life to the parachute. Regardless of if on the way down or if in the plane you were doubting and squirming and wondering if it's really going to hold you up, if you actually jump and you're like, well, I don't know how much I trusted it, and I, I had a lot of doubts, and I, I, I didn't know if it could hold me up, or I thought it was going to fail, the fact that you actually jumped out of the plane is evidence that you trusted it, like you, you had faith in that. Here's how a theologian would say it. They would say the object of your faith, not the quality of it, is what matters most. What you trust in is what matters most. And I think far too many of us in this room are plagued because of a particular language, really, um, in, in the cultures that we've grown up in. A lot of us are plagued by examining how strong our faith is, and we spend far too much time thinking about that and far too little time thinking about what it is we have faith in. So we might ask, this is a question, if you didn't grow up in this kind of context, um, forgive me, some of us did, but some of you will ask, how's your relationship with Jesus lately? Or something like this. And you see what that focus does? It, the, the detention is not on Jesus. It's on the quality of your relationship with him, and what are you planning on doing about that? As if we're sitting in the airplane, and I'm not asking, do you trust the parachute? I'm saying, like, how is your trust in the parachute right now? Is your trust in the parachute doing okay? Do you need to work on your trust in the parachute kind of thing? It would just start being a weird, abstract conversation, but it's become the norm for many of us in our Christian circles. And if I can add one more metaphor in there, because I think it might be really helpful for some of your context, and it may bring this to light, and this is dangerous because I'm adding multiple metaphors now, but some of you struggle with this same thing in your friendships and romances. The same thing you struggle with maybe in your faith you struggle with here, that you focus more on the relationship than the person. So, like, does Jesus want you to have a strong faith? Like, does the quality of your faith matter? Absolutely. That was um, highlighted last week in our text in exactly the same chapter, actually, where Jesus is, um, I think I said something to this effect, quoting probably somebody else, um, that Jesus doesn't pretend to commend weak faith. He wants it to be strong and robust, for sure. But a mustard seed of it is totally worth, I mean, he can do anything with that. He can do anything with that. Does he care that you have a strong faith? Yeah. Does he want you to have great friendships? Yes. But you don't get that by focusing on the friendship. You get that by focusing on the friend. And for some of you, the reason that you struggle so much with friendships and with romance is because you're not thinking about your friends. The very object of the relationship. Do you see that? 
If somebody wants to have a really great friendship with me and all of our conversations are focused about what kind of friendship they want to have, we're not going to be friends. Do you understand that distinction I'm talking about? Like, if, if, if I'm going to be a friend of yours and we're going to have a great friendship, what, what's going to fill that is not going to be either of us thinking about what our friendship's like. We should be far too busy just gushing about each other. I don't have time to talk about whether this is a good friendship, a best friendship, a, a great friendship, a nice friendship, working on our friendship. I don't have time to do those things because all I want to think about is you. Do you understand the distinction there? That we, we miss it. We miss the very object of the thing. How many of us think about our relationship with Jesus, whatever that means, rather than focusing on Jesus himself, the object of our faith? That day, however weak, however beaten up, however superstitious it was, that woman's faith was in Jesus. He was the object. And in that moment, alongside the remarkable miracles of healing her and of healing Jairus' daughter, bringing her back to life, how many of us just completely forgot that Jairus' daughter was even a part of the story? Jesus doesn't ever forget. You can keep reading the rest of Luke 8 tonight when you get back to your room. You can see um, what he does for Jairus' daughter. And alongside the miracles in the story, though, there's something I want to point out to you. So many times in the gospel story, this is, this is the Wonder Woman tie-in, Jesus is doing something else when someone requests something of him. He's, he's zigging, and somebody says, would you zag? He says, yeah, sure. He probably says it with much more affirmation than that. I don't know. But, but he's on his way to heal Jairus' daughter, when Bernice touches his garments and he stops. He's talking to her when a servant of Jairus literally interrupts him. That's the very next verse in our passage, verse 49. When a servant of Jairus literally interrupts him talking to her. And Jesus' response, like, like this guy literally interrupts God talking, and Jesus' response isn't to lecture him about saying, excuse me. Do you understand this? You know what he says? You know what Jesus says? So he was on the way to heal, like, he was on the way to raise a girl from the dead. And he pauses to address a situation. And in the middle of addressing this situation, that would be the most significant moment in this woman's life ever until the day of judgment, when she is raised again and standing before the throne with Jesus. In the most significant day of her life, he's talking to her, and, she, and he gets interrupted. And he doesn't say, hold on just a minute. He's, he, he tells this guy, interrupts him. He looks at that guy, and then he looks at Jairus. He says, don't worry, just believe, she'll be well. And then he goes off. Maybe you think God has more, some of, this, some of you can, can really identify with this, some of us in this room may not as much, but, um, but for those of you that struggle with this, I want you to hear this. Some of you may think that God has more important things to do than enter into your circumstances and respond to your requests. And I suspect maybe you don't want to interrupt God's important work in the world. Friends, there's nothing more important to him than you and me. Nothing. And though we are limited in our capacities, which makes us hard to understand this stuff, he's not. He's not limited. While he was looking at that woman before him and listening to her story, he was in that very moment sustaining the entire universe by the word of his power. When nails would later be driven through his wrists, he would be sustaining the very breath and arms and hands of the guy who drove the nails into his wrists. So as I read these stories and I see all these moments where Jesus is interrupted, what I suspect is, is that none of us have ever actually really interrupted him. 
Think about it. Would you even call it interruption? Would you even call this interruption? If someone's unbroken attention has been on you from the start, well, at what point are you interrupting then? This is what Jesus continues to make space for all the time in the Gospels. For, 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 for you to be seen, for you to see him. He makes space for, for you to be seen and for you to see him all the time. For that woman, for Jairus, for Jairus' servant, for the little girl at the end, which we didn't even read about. In all of these moments, Jesus is making space for them to be seen and for them to see him. And it almost always happens in what we think are interruptions, what we think are detours. What we might see as interruptions, I suspect, are often just instances where the infinite compassion of God breaks through for each and every human being into our field of vision for just a minute. I don't know. Some of you, I, I suspect, might get tripped up with the word seen. Some of you love it. Some of you like, would love to be like, I just wish people would notice me. You know, I don't know. Uh, and, and I'm sure you can identify with that word pretty readily. But for some of you, maybe you don't like the limelight, like me. Maybe you want to hide in the back of the room. Maybe you want to keep your head down in line and just be a part of the crowd. Maybe you don't want to be the center of attention. This is, this is just me coming out, okay? So for those of you in this room, sorry, maybe it's like 10%. Thanks uh, for being like that. Um, anyway, um, what I do know is even those of us in this room that don't like the attention and that kind of thing, we still want to be known. We want to be known. You want to be known and you want to be loved. That's every single person in this room wants to be known and loved. And if you're like the rest of us, every single, I just know you guys do this. I want to apologize for it and qualify it. So I just know this is really true. Maybe you can't identify with this quite yet, but you probably have a very hard time believing that you could have both. You probably think you have to choose. I could either be known, but if people knew me, I could probably have a lot of affection if I put on a show. But you know what we need? We need these to come together. We need to be known and loved. We want to be known and loved, and we struggle so much to believe that we could have both, that we could be known and loved. And that's, that's what I mean by being seen. That when Jesus makes this space for people, in that moment, this woman who was an outcast and rejected and just trying to hide, all eyes went on her. And can you imagine, some of you might not be able to imagine, I don't know, but I just, I imagine that she was so embarrassed and she was trembling, the text says, as she was sharing this stuff. She had just been healed, and she wasn't going, hey, everybody, I'm healed. She was trembling. For more than a decade, she had learned to hide. And here she's the center of attention, and her story is written down. And then 400 years later, somebody gives her a name that isn't even her name. Bernice. I don't even know, I, hope, I don't know if any, I gotta, I gotta stop. I can't say anything about the name Bernice. There may be Bernices in this room. Um, Man, that was really, da- really bad. Um, but I just imagine that she wanted to hide, and Jesus focuses all this attention on her, and that might make some of you uncomfortable, but you know what she noticed in that moment, and he noticed in that moment? Here was somebody who knew her and loved her, invited her into a relationship that she hadn't had before with anybody, probably. He calls her daughter. It's a pretty unique instance in all of the New Testament. By pretty unique, I mean it's a unique instance in the entire New Testament. 
That's a really wild moment. And here we are, like I, I spent today in studying and I was in tears for 20 or 30 minutes just thinking about this woman's life and what she probably felt. Like even as she bumped through the crowd, was she aware? That, I don't know if you guys know this about the law, but what she, when she grew up as a Jewish woman, what she would have believed, what she would have understood, what Jesus himself actually laid out for her, because he's the one who gave the law, is that if she touches somebody, they would become unclean. And so it's crazy for her to even muscle her way through a crowd. And I imagine she probably had to try to hide because if somebody knew who it was and she touched them, they couldn't go into the synagogue that week either because she would have made them unclean. And in a wild turn of events, and this happens over and over and over again, she encounters Jesus. And here is one where she doesn't make somebody who's clean unclean. He is the one who's clean and he can make the unclean clean. See if you can follow that. It's a wild moment. She's healed. And in another passage of Scripture, one of the other gospel accounts, Jesus would comment that she is more than just physically healed, but that she's saved as well. That because she has placed her faith in him, she is saved as well. That's what I mean by being seen, that Jesus would look at someone, would know them and love them, affirming in that moment the truth that they have dignity and infinite worth and are precious to him. Jesus made space that day with that woman and I believe he makes it for us as well in our lives to be seen and to see him, to know that we're known and loved. But my suspicion is that most of the time that that happens, it's probably gonna seem like an interruption. And so here's my invitation for you over the course of the next couple of days and maybe the rest of your life. When it seems like your plans or his plans are being interrupted, keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes open. God has been known to make a lot of space for you to be seen, to be known, to be loved. And it often looks like things are getting interrupted when that happens. Let me pray for you. Father, um, you send that woman off. Your son sends that woman off with peace. Something that she probably hadn't had in more than a decade, if ever. And I know um, that that's what we need and that's what we want too. And, and we pray that you would give us peace, that you would heal us where we need to be healed and, and all that. But uh, may your spirit help us to believe that you, that, you, um, that you see us, that you know and that you love us. Teach us to example that to one another. Help us to see each other too. I'm mindful right now, God, of, of your friend, John, who told us, and we know this already, we know this from our experience, that we don't know ourselves fully yet. And so even as, as I long for, as we long together um, for being known and loved, being seen, this kind of stuff, we acknowledge that, um, that it will never be satisfied fully until the day when we see you fully. And so as a people of hope, we look forward to that day but we do ask for you to give us glimpses of it, tastes of it. Keep our eyes open tonight and then in the coming days um, for seeming interruptions, for detours, and when things don't run right, keep our eyes open and show us how you're revealing your, you to us and, and how you're letting us know how much you know and love us. Would you receive our worship now? Um, receive it in pleasure. Thank you for how kind you are. Thank you for noticing that woman that day and for offering yourself to us too. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you'd like to pray with somebody, there's people in the back who'd be willing to pray with you.